church. Whoa, sorry about that. <laughs> what a joy to be together today. Amen? Amen. Guys, I need your permission before we keep going. Is it okay? Can we just go hard this morning? Is that all right? Like, I don't know about you guys, but like, after that time of worship, of prayer, of engaging, like, I'm just ready to go hard for Jesus for a little bit. Is that cool? What are you going to say to that? Are you going to say no? <laughs> Listen, guys, we are in Matthew chapter 8 today. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we're continuing a series. We've been doing kind of a little bit of a series as we do these preview gatherings uh, about the, the supremacy of Jesus, right? This, this phrase we keep coming back to that it's, it's all about Jesus. In Colossians 1, in the, the kind of the Christology in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, in verse 18, there's this phrase that I love. It says, and he, he being Jesus, is the head of the body, that is the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The preeminence of Christ. He is above all. So when we say it's all about Jesus, we actually literally mean it's all about Jesus. He is creator. He is God. He is sustainer. He is redeemer. He is savior. It's all about him. Amen? So I have a dog. I had a dog. I have a dog, but I had a dog. If you knew me a while back, I had this basset hound named Mabel. And if you've known me a while, Mabel's a little bit of a legend because she's, she was a terrible creature. And I love dogs, but Mabel was terrible <laughs> in a lot of ways. And I could waste our whole time talking about how terrible Mabel was. But I'm going to give you this story. See, we have a pretty big yard, wide open, no fence, and, and our dogs were pretty wild. And so we got one of those invisible fences and put it in, which aren't really invisible. They're just buried. But if you ever had one of these things, you bury a wire around the edge of your yard and you put a collar on your dog and if they walk over the wire, it shocks them. Uh, and they learn not to walk close to where the wire is. And that's a little crueler than it is in practice, right? Because you, you fence it out and you put little flags and you kind of teach them and, and it has like a proximity thing where if they get within so many feet, it beeps. And if they get a little closer, then it vibrates. And then if they keep going, it bzz, you know, buzzes them. And so when we moved into the house we're in now, we put in one of these invisible fences and we trained our dogs on it. And we had two dogs at the time. We had a big old huge St. Bernard and this little basset hound Mabel. And, and the St. Bernard learned it in about 15 seconds. He had to get buzzed once and was like, I'm never doing that again. And he, and he figured it out. It was great. Mabel did not do great with the invisible fence. She would walk right over to where it was. And if it buzzed her, rather than, you know, doing what might be the normal reaction to step away from pain she would lay down and start howling. And it would just continue to buzz her. Bzz, 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 bzz. And she became so traumatized that she wouldn't go into our yard. We had to carry her outside to get her to go to the bathroom. And eventually she learned the fence and blah, 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 blah. And it was fine. She figured it out. Here's the funny thing. And this actually isn't funny, but it is. So you're going to have to stick with me for a minute. Listen, if you knew Mabel, you'd have no mercy for her in the story. I promise. Anyway. At one point, Mabel got old, she got really unhealthy, she started having just all sorts of different health problems, and she started having these seizures, and she'd lay down and, and twitch and, and do that stuff. And in the midst of that, one of the symptoms she got was that she lost feeling in her skin. She was numb. And it got to the point where she could no longer feel her shock collar. You could, you know, bzz, 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 in her, it would sit there and her neck would be twitching and she'd just look at you because she couldn't, couldn't feel it. But here's the amazing thing. 
she was so terrified of that invisible fence that all that little collar had to do was beep and she'd run away from it. And she lived the rest of her life never breaking out of that fence, I don't think even once, even though there was nothing holding her in, right? She could have walked right through it and it could have buzzed her all day long and she wouldn't have felt anything. She was fine. But she was convinced that if she allowed the beeping to turn into the vibration, to turn into the buzzing, that her little dog life would end. And so she never left that yard ever again. She had a freedom that she had no concept of and she never engaged it. She lived the rest of her life totally obedient to that fence, which is wild. It's wild, right? And you say, no, that's just good training. Well, that's actually what we're going to talk about today <laughs> in a roundabout weird way. I want to talk about the way that Jesus, the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, frees you from the power of sin in your life. And yes, in this analogy, you are the Mabel. Uh, so, sorry. Didn't mean to insult you like that. But I'm serious about this. Jesus frees us from the power of the curse, the power of sin, the power of the law, the power of death. That's, those shackles are unlocked if you are in Christ. And yet many of us are like Mabel. And we don't actually walk in the freedom that has been granted to us. Matthew 8 says this, starting in the first verse. When he came down from the mountain, he being Jesus, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leopard came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. This is the word of the Lord, beloved. Pray with me. Father God, we ask this morning that you would speak to us through your word. As we look at the story and in a few minutes, as we jump into the letter to the Romans, God, we ask that you would be our discipler that you would illuminate the text to us. Holy Spirit, soften our hearts, open our eyes and open our ears that we might hear from you, that we might be encouraged in you, that we might be convicted in you. And ultimately, God, that we might leave this place today having heard from you what our hearts need. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So here's what I'd like to do today. I'm going to walk us through this narrative, which is probably pretty familiar to, to most of us. It's just going to take a couple of minutes. I'm going to point out a couple cultural, historical elements to kind of help illuminate this text, I think, with, within its context here. And this is going to lead us into a discussion about the nature of the freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ is one of those churchy phrases that's not just a churchy phrase, it's a doctrinal phrase. This is something that you know, the theologians debate and discuss in their ivory towers. But I want to I get us to this discussion about the freedom that Christ gives to his followers. This is going to lead us to Romans uh, in a famous section on the law and the curse and the gospel. We'll settle into Romans 6 and end our time talking about how the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus grants us freedom from sin and to the kingdom. We'll end our time by celebrating the fullness of Jesus with some songs, some communion, and some getting rowdy. Sound good? 
Awesome. So jump into this story with me. This text picks up in Matthew immediately following the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you have studied kind of all four Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all tell the story of Jesus, but from slightly different perspectives with kind of slightly different intentions in mind, Matthew is unique amongst the Gospel tellers in that He mostly tells the story in chronological order, but he's not terribly concerned with chronology. What what Matthew actually does for us is he takes some of Jesus' famous teachings, his discourses, and he structures the story where whatever the main theme of a particular discourse was, he groups that next to a series of narratives that illustrate the theme of the discourse. It ends up mostly actually being really close to what we know of chronological order of Jesus' life, but there's some pieces where he's way more concerned with you seeing that Jesus put his money where his mouth was, that he walked the talk he talked, right? And so he puts these narratives next to each other. So we've just had the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous teaching. He goes up on this hill, his closest followers, the, the, the huge crowds around him, and he walks through the ethics and the life of the kingdom of God. If you go back and read Matthew 5 through 7, that's basically what Jesus is getting into. This is the kingdom of God. This is what life is like in the kingdom of God. And one of the biggest themes in this sermon, if you just read it, it's so different from how we do sermons today that it can feel really disjointed. But there is this unifying theme of kingdom, and then beyond that, this unifying theme of the authority of Jesus to accurately describe and define the kingdom. That's really important. One one of the things you hear over and over in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. And what he's doing is he's taking established, well-known theological debates of his day, This is Jesus jumping into the Twitterverse of his day and grabbing a hold of the conflicts that different religious and theological leaders grabbed a hold of. And if you spend any time on Twitter reading pastor's accounts, then you could guess the kind of things he might be grabbing a hold of if he was delivering the Sermon on the Mount today. But but, but he grabs a hold of several of these tricky theological controversies of his day and then declares, you know, here's how you've heard this taught. Here's how you've heard the scriptures illuminated and explained on this point. But I'm telling you they're wrong. And here's what the text actually says and means and what that means for you. Which is pretty intense. If you know a little bit about the way Jewish culture worked and the way they understood authority, especially in the context of Bible teaching, this is a really bold thing for Jesus to do. Most rabbis and teachers taught underneath the yoke or the authority or the interpretation of a rabbi who came before them. They would live under that yoke, and whatever that rabbi said about the text, they would agree with that interpretation. But Jesus has no real interest in that. And if you actually go back and look up the different theological controversies of the day and the big rabbis, their takes on them, Jesus doesn't align himself fully with any of the teachers of his day because Jesus is speaking from his own authority, which is a big deal. And the people noticed. If you look at the closing verse of chapter 7, when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority 
and not as their scribes. One of the biggest themes of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is saying, I get to tell you what the Bible means and what the kingdom of God is. And you need to just deal with it, (laughs) which is pretty intense. It's a pretty big thing for someone to claim. And then we get this series of narratives that show us Jesus's authority in action. This guy is not just talk. He is living, breathing the authority of God in ways that no one can argue with. The dude walks out onto the Sea of Galilee and tells a storm to be quiet, and it does. Try that the next time the tornado sirens go off, right? It doesn't work for us. We don't have the authority that Jesus walked on this planet with, right? Jesus has this authority. And the way it works out, as he's coming down off the mount, this leper approaches him and asks him for Jesus to heal him. Which is, there's so much beauty wrapped up in this text that we're actually not going to really dig super deep into today. But, but the, the big thing we see here is that this guy, this guy was so captured by Jesus for whatever reason, he already had confidence in Jesus' ability to perform the miracle. What he's asking is if Jesus is willing to perform the miracle. If you will, you can make me clean. Now, to understand that scene, we have to know a little bit about leprosy in this day and why it was such a big deal. And if you've been around church world enough, you probably know like leprosy equals bad, right? But, but let's, let's talk about this for, indulge me for just a second, right, while we talk about this. So when we use the term leprosy today, we're talking about a degenerative disease called Hansen's disease that, that kind of rots away your nervous system and you lose feeling and parts of your body can fall off and it's very gross and, and, and awful. And that existed in this day and this was definitely encompassed by that. But the, the term historically and specifically biblically encompassed a whole range of illnesses that were essentially infectious skin diseases that you could see very obviously in how they affected the skin. And pretty much everyone in the ancient world was pretty scared of leprosy. They didn't know what it was. They didn't know they were dealing with 15 different diseases. They just knew some people's skin turned weird colors and parts fell off, and they didn't want that to happen to them, right? And so this was something that was very alarming. People were very careful about it in the ancient days. Like, we have easy treatments for the vast majority of these things. But for the Jew, it was even a step further, Because if you go back and you look in Leviticus 13 and Deuteronomy 24, the actual scripture, the word of God, gives specific and clear definitions for what is and isn't leprosy, and it's put into a special category. This is not just illness or disease, right? This is not Peter's mother-in-law getting the flu and going and laying in bed. According to scripture, leprosy was a cleanliness issue, a holiness issue. Now, the ancient Jews, because of the law given at Mount Sinai, God gave them kind of these very physical analogies for his holiness and their sinfulness through ceremonial cleanliness and ceremonial uncleanliness. You had to be clean to come into the presence of God, to be able to engage in worship. You must be ceremonially clean. This physical analogy to the reality of sin and the reality of God's holiness. And and leprosy was put within this category of unclean. It wasn't just you're sick, you are unclean. 
And go back and read Leviticus 13. It's brutal what this means for you. If you have leprosy and it doesn't get better on its own, then your life is over. You are barred from public worship and from public sacrifice. You are barred from your career and your job and your place of work. You are barred from your home and your family and your spouse and your kids. You are barred from your community. You must go outside the camp, outside the city, and live in the wilderness, not touching anyone, not touching the things that other people touch, not going within so many feet of them. And beyond that, you must cover yourself in bells so that people can hear you walking around. And if you believe people are close to you, you must shout unclean as you walk so they can avoid you. And lepers were, were essentially not just like cast out of society, but they were cast out of life. That's an intense thing to say, but I want you guys to see this. See, this man, as he approaches Jesus, he is the living embodiment of the curse. This man is living death. He has an illness that will very likely kill him. He's unclean and cut off from worship. He's isolated and separated from his family. Who knows how many days, months, or years it's been since he touched another human being. This man is in bondage to the curse. He's bound up by the law. He's unclean. He can't worship. He can't seek to have his sins atoned for. He can't join with his church family. He's bound up by the curse. Leprosy is not a part of God's original design. It is illness. It's sickness. It's not supposed to be there. He's bound up by sin. Right? The scripture tells us that, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin or death. This man is bound up by sin and death, which, which here's the thing, right? We're all, apart from Christ, bound up by sin and death. But this man, this man's outward life, his body, his appearance, his lifestyle, perfectly matched the inner state of his soul as one apart from Christ. Bound up by death, bound up by sin, bound up by the curse, bound up by law. This man, his whole person embodies the curse. And he approaches Jesus, which by the way was illegal, but he does. He approaches Jesus. This man literally breathes uncleanliness. He's not allowed to approach Jews, much less famous rabbis, but he risks it because something about the authority of this rabbi has captured his heart. If you will, he says, if you will, you can make me clean. He knows Jesus can do the work. The question is whether this holy man will turn aside for this living curse. And we know how the story goes. Of course Jesus will. Of course he will. I will, he says. And he reaches out and he, and he touches the man. And rather than the man's uncleanliness transferring upon Jesus and defiling him, Jesus' holiness is so powerful that it transfers over to this man and he is cleansed. And Jesus frees him from the power of the curse. 
and his body is healed and he's opened up and invited to go and worship with his people again. Again, this, this physical picture of the spiritual reality of the gospel. This man is bound by the curse, but at the touch of Jesus, he is set free. Amen? What a picture. The, the, the work of Jesus frees us from the power of sin and death. Jesus gives true, hear this church, true freedom. Not, not, not the partial freedom of this world, not political freedom, not social freedom, not, not psychological or relational freedom. No, no, no. Jesus frees you from the curse, from the power of sin. Beloved, Jesus frees you. He will. Now let me poke at this wonderful moment and this wonderful truth for just a second. It is easy in a setting like this, after we sang the songs we just sang, after we read the story we just read, to hear that and go, whew, amen. Or come on, if it's me in the room, right? It's easy to do that. Yes, Jesus sets us free. Yes, he is willing. He reaches out and t- come on. That's, that's amazing. But what the heck does that actually mean? What does that actually mean in your life right now today when you walk out of this space? If I look at you and I say, Jesus frees you, are you walking in the freedom of Christ? Well, in church, it's easy to be like, yes, yes and amen. What does it mean to walk in the freedom of Christ? What is a life freed by Jesus? How, what is he actually doing? How does he do it? What is it? How does it speak into your life? None of us walked into this space with leprosy. I would go so far as to guess probably none of us came to Christ at the initial point of our salvation with leprosy, right? So what does that mean? I want to invite you to turn over to Romans chapter 6. I'm going to read us a good long chunk here, so I'd like for you to have it in front of you. In Romans 5 through 8, Paul gives this amazing picture. He talks about how Jesus' work in freeing us from the power of sin, the death, law, like curse, like all those things, it goes into each of these ideas in detail. Jesus frees us from the power of sin. He frees us from the power of death. He frees us from the power of the law. He frees us from the curse. And he talks about it from the perspective of the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. This is a, a larger chunk in Romans. I would really encourage you to go and study this on your own, maybe later this week, Romans 5 through 8. It's this beautiful, beautiful chunk of Scripture. We're jumping into Romans 6, right in the middle of this discussion. And we're going to talk about how, how Jesus frees us and what, what that actually practically looks like in our life here and now. We're going to talk about the person and work of Jesus. So, read this with me. Romans chapter 6, starting in the first verse, we say this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Woo! There's a lot. But did you follow? Paul is talking about our baptism, right? What we kind of, this, this public act of worship and obedience as an analogy for our identity in Christ. Remember, this whole larger section is about the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus and how that gives us freedom. So, so, so consider these two ideas with me and we'll kind of wrap it back to this text. The person of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. He's God. He's no mere man, no mere good teacher. He is God incarnate, God as man. As Philippians 2 says it, God poured out for us. This is vital, absolutely vital, because where Jesus's authority comes from is his deity. If Jesus were a man or a good teacher and he walked on the scene and said, this is how it is, we'd have to compare it to everyone else who said, this is how it is. But he is preeminent. He is divine. He's God. And so when he walks on the scene and says, this is how it is, guess what? It is. There's no, there's no questioning that, debating that, studying that, comparing that. He's the one who sets the rules. The authority rests with him. He is creator and sustainer. As Colossians 1 says, he made all things and holds all things together. Of course, he can stand on the mount and tell the crowds how to correctly understand the Old Testament. He wrote it. It's his book. He made the people listening. He designed their their hearts and their head. He is God which makes him the ultimate and only real authority. This is the very foundation of everything we hold and believe as Christians. And as a church, Jesus is Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's God with skin and bones and flesh, which makes his work all the more strange. The work of Jesus. Jesus is God. He is eternal creator. He does not need us. It's an intense thing to say, but it's true. If he's, if he's preeminent, if he is God on high, then you are not necessary to him. 
But for whatever reason, he loves you. And thus, hear this, the God of the universe sacrifices himself for you. What? That is, that is ludicrous. Why? Why? Why would a king give himself for his subjects? Why would God give himself for people? And yet that is the work of Jesus. He does not, he does not separate himself from us, from sin, from his world, from his creation. No, he steps into his creation. He steps into the mud and the mire of the curse and he takes on human form. He humbles himself. He pours himself out and he walks as Emmanuel, as God with us, as God that you can look in the eye and talk to and touch and spend a meal with. But here's the amazing thing. He doesn't just live in this world. He lives above this world. He enters into a cursed and broken sinful world where every human being who breathes lives and breathes death and sin, where every single person you meet, their inside looks just like that leper. But he walks through this world perfect, never sinning, never seeking himself above others, never taking the bait and stepping into the curse, always walking and living in perfect holiness and righteousness. The only person to ever walk this earth who actually beat the curse, who actually lived above sin, who actually didn't deserve the punishment of sin. But look what Jesus does. He dies an unjust sinner's death. He's betrayed and killed and suffers, not just physical death, but the very wrath of God. On the cross, he cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the sin of humanity, the sin of this world, the curse, the wrath of God for sin. The scripture says it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a wrathful God. And that is exactly what Jesus does on your and my behalf. As someone who had earned eternity by the sweat of his brow, by the work of his hand, by the perfect righteous life he lived, he had earned holiness. And yet he surrenders himself to the wrath of God. And he drinks in the cup of the wrath against sin. And all, all of the curse, all of the effects of sin is poured out upon him. And he dies. Which is the ultimate price the curse and sin demands. The wages of sin is death. And this, by the way, is Paul's point. That when death happens, the price is paid. The curse is fulfilled. So Jesus dies. But here's the amazing thing. He shouldn't have died. He's God. He shouldn't have borne the curse. He's perfect. So when the curse fully satisfied itself on the perfect life of Jesus, it found that it could not contain him. And those lungs which stopped breathing and that heart which stopped beating began afresh. And Jesus rose from the dead by the power of the Spirit. 
And he walked out of the tomb alive and well and perfect and complete because the curse could not, could not bear its authority over and above the preeminent God of the universe. Amen? And he walked out of that tomb alive and well, having sloughed off the most the curse could pour on him. And he ascended into heaven from which he will return and come and make all things new. Beloved, this is the work of Jesus. He is God. He has authority. He can say what is and what isn't. But his work, look what he has accomplished. Look what he has done. He lived a perfect life. He died the death of sin. He rose from the dead, thus fulfilling the requirements of the law, fulfilling the requirements of the curse. And he ascended into heaven from which he'll return and make all things new. What a work Jesus has done on our behalf. I mean, if that doesn't get you a little excited, I don't think you're reflecting on it enough. What a work he has accomplished on our behalf. What a Jesus we serve. So, what Paul says here is that freedom in Christ is simply this. Jesus is God, so he gets to say who you are and what you are. His authority speaks louder than anything else in reality. And his work is sufficient. So you, wretched sinner, sorry, you get to identify with him in his death. You get to say, Christ in my place. His death, my death. And you get to be laid down with him. And he shields you as the wrath of God is poured out upon your sin. And he covers you as the curse comes to claim what is its due. And you are laid down with him in the grave. And the effects of sin, the the price of the curse, the wrath of God are fully satisfied in his death. You identify with Christ in his death. Beloved, that is freedom. That is freedom. The most wretched slavery on earth cannot hold on to a slave after he's dead. Right? So when you identify with Christ and you are laid down with him in his death, you are freed. That curse is paid for. That wrath is satisfied. You are free. Come on, church. But it doesn't just stop there. Because because as Paul says here, you don't just identify with him in his death. You get to identify with him in his life and in his resurrection and his holiness and his divinity that, that could not be stamped down by the curse that draws him back to life and back to perfection into eternity. You get to identify with that. And you get to be raised from the dead. And you get to be brought up perfect and holy and blameless, washed white as snow. Come on, church. You get to identify with Christ in his death, and you get to identify with him in his perfect life. So when he comes back to make all things new, and all sin, and all suffering, and all traces of the curse are wiped out from existence, guess what? You won't be wiped out. Because you've been washed in him. You've been identified with his death. You've been raised up in newness of life. 
and you will go on into eternity with him. Beloved, what is the work of Jesus? How does the work of Jesus give you freedom? It unlocks the shackles of sin and death. Beloved, apart from Christ, hear this, apart from Christ, you are a slave to sin. You are owned by sin. You have signed your name to that contract time and time and time and time and time and time and time again, and you are owed to the curse. It owns you. Apart from Christ, you have no choice but wrath and death and sin. That's intense. You can do nothing, nothing to save yourself from that, but simply die and be taken. That is, that is your option apart from Christ. But in Christ, in Christ, through the person of Jesus, God on high, the work of Jesus, the beautiful, amazing gospel, he sets you free. He unlocks your shackles. And you say, how does freedom in Christ mean anything? I still struggle with sin. Bad things still happen to me. I still run to empty wells. Injustice still happens. This world is still terrible. Yeah. Because the remnants of sin are still here. And as Paul describes in this section, your old man is still at war with you. Read Romans 7. Things I want to do, I don't do. Things I don't want to do, I do. It's all there. But here's what's amazing. In Christ, your shackles are unlocked. In Christ, you are not bound to sin. In Christ, you are not owned by the curse. In Christ, you have freedom. In Christ, you can actually seek holiness and righteousness. In Christ, in the power of the Spirit, hear this church, you can have victory over sin. You can fight the sin that lives within you. You can engage the old man that is at war with your heart. And in the power of Jesus, you can have victory. Without him, you had no hope. You had no, nothing to do, no strength, no weapon. You were shackled, but in him, your shackles have been taken off. And you might choose sin all day long. But you're choosing it out of your freedom. And you can fight for holiness in that same freedom. What a gift the gospel is. What a God we serve, amen? Beloved, in Christ, you are freed from the power of death and sin. Man, will you guys come up here? Here's how I want to end this. I want to end this with just this. Christ has set you free. I mean, I hope as we took a minute and reflected on the work of Jesus on your behalf, the work that we identify with, the death that we identify with, the life that we identify with. I hope as we took a minute to sit on that, something in your soul just sparked a little bit. Because that is the work Jesus has accomplished for you. And I don't, I don't care if you're in this space and you're still debating whether or not you want to follow Christ or if you've been following Christ for longer than I've been alive. That truth is still fire. That is still electricity for the human soul. 
Jesus has accomplished this work on your behalf, beloved. You are free in him. Sin does not have a hold on you. The law does not have a hold on you. The curse does not have a hold on you. Death does not have a hold on you. Death has lost its sting. When you know how the story ends. Come on, church. Here's what I want to invite you to do. We're going to sing a song. It's a good song. I want to, and then after that, we're going to take communion. I want to invite you, church. Drink deep of the gospel of Jesus. Whether you are exploring and thinking and considering, whether you've been following him for years, today, beloved of Jesus, drink deep of the gospel of Christ, of the love of Jesus on your behalf, on the work accomplished on your behalf. He loves you like crazy. So be full of him. Fill yourself up to the brim with him. Keep drinking of the gospel of Jesus until it overflows out of you and spills all over your life because there is enough. So let's stand up. Let's sing loud to Jesus. And then let's drink deep the covenant of grace. Amen.